if the nihilist is saying nothing matters, well, if nothing matters, then you can do whatever you want. Then what's the right way to live life? Is going, if you like killing people, let's go and kill people. So I'm here with John Marmiz. Is that right? Marmish. Mm -hmm. Marmish. So who are you, John? Uh, who am I? Gosh, that's, that's a big philosophical question. I, uh, <laughs> I'm a philosophy instructor at the College of Marin. Um, I've been teaching there for 18 years. Um, I've been uh, interested in philosophy since I was a teenager. And uh, my specialty uh, is in nihilism and humor. Nihilism and humor. Both of them is something that I'm deeply interested about. But nihilism, I think, is a bit complex word. As I understand, uh, nihilism is about nothingness in the world. So yeah, the can, can you explain me what nihilism is? And sure. Another complicated, very, very complicated topic. Um, the word itself uh, is, comes from a Latin word, um, nihil nothing uh, ism uh, you know the study of or the science of so uh, nihilism as you quite rightly stated is um, a philosophy of nothingness um, the the term is more than descriptive though um, it has this whole history behind it which uh, not only describes the state of affairs but it seems also to be an evaluation so um, typically when people are using the term nihilism um, they're using it as a criticism, um, as a, in a negative way, you might say. Um, so they're, they're criticizing the thing that they're talking about. So within philosophy, um, to call someone a nihilist has traditionally been an insult. Um, so, you know, to claim that someone's philosophy is nihilistic is to say that it has nothing positive about it, that it's destructive, that it advocates, um, you know, the, uh, the tearing down of anything that's positive and that it doesn't advocate any sort of, um, you know, positive alternatives. And that's, that to me is something that needed to be challenged. Um, so I guess you could say that my entire sort of career in philosophy has been focused on challenging that very, very notion about nihilism. Um, ever since I was a, you know, a teenager, um, the things that I was interested in were criticized as being nihilistic. And I think that that's the very thing that got me interested in the whole topic. Um, so things like horror movies, uh, you know, uh, existential literature, like, uh, the, you know, the works of Camus or Sartre, um, uh, Punk rock music, one of my you know, my favorite form of music. All of that has been criticized as nihilistic. So you mean that horror movies and all this stuff that you are describing now, uh, the people, the society, they didn't find the value inside it, and you found value inside those things. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, perfect way of putting it. Um, you know, growing up, uh, you know, my. Uh, my superiors and authority figures thought that those things had no value, that I should be interested in other sorts of things. And, you know, for me, I, I found a great amount of joy in watching uh, things like horror movies or listening to punk rock music. And so it, I think that's what led me to wonder, so, you know, am I a nihilist? And, you know, I've come to the conclusion that I am and that that's not a bad thing, that there is value in nihilism. So, 
but what is nihilism? What is ni- <laughs> what is nihilism? What is this nothingness that we are talking about? What is this theory? Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's one of the weird things about, um, you know, coming to terms with who you are is um, you are who you are, but you don't know who you are until you reflect back upon who you are and the things that you like. And so that's that's been the sort of journey that I've been through. That, that, that's interesting. You are who you are, but you don't understand who you are until you reflect back on yourself. Yeah. I think it's very true. Yes. I mean, that's, you know, most of us uh, kind of drift through life not reflecting on who we are. And so even though we are who we are, we don't really know ourselves. And uh, yeah, my reflections on nihilism, you know, led me to try to understand what it is in me that was nihilistic. And uh, so, you know, as I became more uh, systematic in my approach to it, um, I came to a kind of definition of what uh, what nihilism is. And uh, for me, nihilism has to do with the situation. It's a it's a, a way of thinking. Okay? It's a philosophy. And uh, that philosophy has certain premises that um, it works from. Um, the first of the premises is that our highest aspirations and goals are out of reach. So things like absolute perfection or beauty, um, truth, those sorts of things are their, um, their projections, these superlative goals that we can, we can never attain. We can never attain absolute truth. I think you said that you, in one you, of your podcasts. You, you use too many complicated words. You need to <laughs> to make it more simple for me to understand. <laughs> well, this yeah, this is something that you you mentioned in one of your uh, your podcasts. No one knows the truth. I recall you saying that, and um, that's that's the the basic idea here is that what is truth? It's something that you know you're you're searching for and you're trying to get at but you can never grab onto it. You can't get your teeth into it. It's not something tangible, okay. right? What is, what is something? So, mm-hmm. so this is the fundamental thing about nihilism. This is the belief that the, That's that the first, is, first premise. That we, can, we cannot find any true thing in this world. What is... That's, and uh, what what does true means? Well, and that's that's part of the dilemma here is that there's something about humans that we want truth, right? I mean, the whole history of philosophy is the search for truth, for real truth, not fake truth. Okay, we want to know what's really real, not just what people say is real, not what just feels good, not what just makes us money. You know, philosophers, the very meaning of the term philosophy is a love of wisdom. Okay? We aspire and we love the truth. Okay? But in order to love and move towards something, it has to be out of your grasp. I mean, if you had it, you wouldn't be moving towards it. Right. And so the first premise of nihilism, you know, most of us uh, um, kind of that drift through life, not reflecting on who we are. And so even though beauty, we are who we are, okay, we don't really know ourselves. Fundamental yeah. things that, yeah, my reflections on nihilism, that they're out of our grasp. We don't have try to understand what it is. You know, that's me, the very thing that, that was nihilistic. 
criticize him. And I so, think is negative. You know, as I became it, more it's, uh, fundamentally saying my approach can, to it, we don't have uh, what I came to a want. kind of definition of what uh, what nihilism is. And uh, for me, yes. nihilism it, it has to do with the situation. It's a so you're it's basically a, saying a way of that, thinking. Uh, Nihilism it's a philosophy, seen and uh, that philosophy that has certain premises that um, it works from. Uh, um, the first of the premises is that our highest aspirations and goals are out of reach. Very good things like absolute perfection, beauty, um, truth. Those sorts of things are their uh, uh, projections. Not, uh, these superlative uh, goals that we can we can never attain. We can never attain absolute both. truth. I think you said but, that in one yeah, of your podcasts. Excellent. The one thing that I would um, I would uh, well, add, to and that's that, that's part, part of the dilemma second, here, is that there's something about how I think of humans that is that we want this, truth separation right. from what we truly want I mean, the whole history of philosophy is the search is for truth for real truth it's not other than truth. it ought to be okay we want to know what's so, really real wait, what do you mean not just what people say it? is real mm -hmm. not what just the feels good what not what I, just I makes us money um it's um philosophers it's, it's not the very meaning of the, the way we wish it is a love of wisdom okay we aspire oh, and so love we imagine but in order to love not going and to move be towards something, we expect it, it has to be out of your grasp. Right. So, truth. I mean, if you had it, you wouldn't. Right. I desire truth. It. I realize, right. and it's so out of the my first grasp. premise of nihilism. Now, there are some folks who might say, "Well, that's just um, is that that's just the way truth it is." Who cares? And other sorts but the of goals like goodness. Care. The nihilist says that's not okay. the way the world fundamental. Be. In other words, that, there's a um, fundamental value in the world that they're out of our grasp. The world is we don't not have them the way it should be. And that's you know that's the very I'm thing that many people criticize about nihilism. Most think is negative about it because it's fundamentally justice, saying that goodness. we can we don't have so the what world is, is flawed. Want. Right. I desire the, truth. I realize it's out of my grasp. And, uh, now there are some folks who might say, "Well, that's just that's, that's just the, the way it is." Point, is there's nothing but you the can nihilist do about does it. care. We the live in a says, flawed, not world. The way in which the world separated. In other words, things there's a fundamental the flaw in the world. The world is not the way it should be. I'm so separated from there is nothing what to do I most desire and we're living a truth, flawed beauty, justice, war, goodness. Uh, world. So the world is flawed according so to the So the only thing is to do is to accept it. That that's the response that no, I agree traditionally with you. I, I agree been, with you one hundred percent leveled. I mean that's nihilism. When um, something when philosophers it's a sense of liberation something nihilistic that potentially so you find this in the world's religion feeling as though nothing is like perfect Taoism in the world or in Buddhism. That um, um, Buddhism you know, is a, that is a perfect uh, example. Nothing is um, as you know, it should be. Noble truths and you know, if the nihilist is um, saying is nothing matters, suffering is caused by desire. Well, if nothing matters again, you can suffering get rid of whatever follow the you want path in order to get rid and of so desire. you can be liberated so in Buddhism, to, you have know, a perfect to do example all the of things philosophy that, says, yeah, the that world give you joy like and it's you because we desire the world um, to I, be a I find that one of so the let's stop let's just of, accept you know, nihilistic the philosophy again the not everyone do does so the nihilist is someone who's in a position in which they can't accept the world the way it is but yet there's nothing you can do to change the world it's a it's a fundamentally there's a fundamental tragedy at the heart of nihilism.
So, so what nihilists do? They they don't accept the word like it is. They don't like it, but but that but still that's the way it is, and they cannot change anything. But they, so they struggle and they suffer. That's that's um, that's one of the aspects of nihilism is the view that life is consumed with struggling and suffering. Now, you wait, know, wait, that, it's, it, 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 it's very, it's very interesting. It's like, this is grabs to expand a lot of stuff that I want to paint the picture correctly in my brain. And it needs a lot more than what we just discussed to paint the picture on my brain on what is this belief exactly. So, so let's, let's take, take a step back. So let's. We're watching from um, above. I'm a human. I'm a nihilist, let's say. And uh, I believe that there is this world that we're living is there is no meaning. There is no reason to be here. There is the, uh, and we will never find the reason, the meaning. I am a bit upset about that, but I cannot do anything. But I'm trying to do stuff to learn and to do like this is what the nihilistic view is. Good, yeah. Now you know part of part of what you've injected there, though, is a sort of response to nihilism. So the basic situation of nihilism is that that state of being in which the world, like you said seems to lack meaning because I can't grasp onto what my highest values are. And I feel that there's nothing I can do about it. Now, one, you know, the traditional um, solution that's been offered to nihilism um, by philosophers is that we should, you know, we should do something about, we should, we should change something about those premises. So like in, in Buddhism, as I said, um, the suggestion to avoid nihilism is to is to change the nature of your thinking. So think about the world differently, and then you can avoid, you know, that tragedy of nihilism. Um, you know, another uh, another solution is to reject the view that things like truth and justice and beauty. Uh, you can reject the view that those are unattainable, and so you have utopian philosophies like Marxism. Um, you know, Platonism, uh, Christianity, various religions, which claim that, no, you can have the ultimate truth. So that's a way out of nihilism. Um, you know, if you accept all of the, um, uh, the, uh, the premises of nihilism, there are still a variety of ways that you can deal with it. So one of those ways, you know, is many um, critics of nihilism um, point out one of those ways is kill yourself. Suicide is a, um, is a solution to nihilism. Um, I think it's a mistake to say that that's the only solution. Okay. Another solution <laughs> is to, <laughs> is to, as you said, continue grinding away in life, continue to suffer, continue to do things. Why? Well, not because they mean anything in the ultimate, you know, course of reality, but to do it because, I don't know, it's interesting. Um, you know, perhaps, perhaps you can make interesting podcasts. You can write interesting books. 
you can write, make interesting art. So a nihilist, you know, doesn't have to descend into suicide or passivity simply because, you know, they, they don't have perfection in life. They can, you know, do interesting things. So that's, you know, that's another solution um, to the nihilistic problem. So, so you are defining this as a problem, nihilistic problem. That's a good point. It, traditionally, that's the way that philosophers talk about nihilism. It's a problem. And Christianity, Buddhism, uh, Marxism, various political philosophies have been formulated as ways to get us past nihilism. I don't think of it as a problem so much as a state of affairs. It's It's the way the world is. It's, it's a philosophy of the world. So you're right. Many people, most people think of it as a problem to be overcome. I don't think of it as a problem to be overcome. I think of it as a situation to be dealt with. Okay. So let's go on a day to day. You, I saw you like music. <laughs> so rock music, I'm a punk rock or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, punk music. Mm -hmm. So, Uh, so when you listen the, to the music, you feel something, right? You, you, is that art uh, feeling or this, uh, so, uh, what nihilist, how to say about the, this experience thing that is it like they, they, they say that is, is just meaningless it's artificial this because you feel good when you listen to music like this good feeling good new not always maybe you feel sad or maybe you but this feeling what what Niall is has had to say about no so that, that's an excellent you know it's an excellent example to examine i mean what is the purpose of listening to say punk rock music um you know in I'll speak for, you know, from my own experience of it is that it conjures emotions in me. It makes me feel a certain way, right? Angry, outraged, um, powerful, right? Now, does it do it perfectly? No, there's no one punk song that gives me the perfect feeling of anger or outrage or power. Okay? There's not one song that does it perfectly. Does that mean that because no song perfectly expresses my feeling that I'm not going to listen to it, that I find it worthless and, you know, not uh, and not worth listening to? No, it doesn't. It, just because something doesn't perfectly, um, you know, uh, make me feel a certain way doesn't mean that the feeling I have is, you know, insignificant. It's still a significant and uh you know um what do i want do, to say do we, do do we ever feel that perfect feeling in anything or never that perfect I don't, feeling su suitable for us is unattainable i think well i've i think as you know from the nihilistic perspective that no there is no perfect feeling there is no perfect song there is no perfect expression you know in art Um, that's what I think um, nihilistic art, the nihilistic component of art is. Art is aspiring to express something, but there's no piece of art that perfectly expresses beauty or that ex perfectly expresses the sublime. Okay? They, 
they lead us in that direction. And so everything, music, art, okay, everything in life is a relative failure when judged from the perspective of perfection. Uh, do you think perfection is unattainable, period? Because maybe, uh, let's say, when you give all your data piece of points to uh, artificial intelligence in the future, and you say, this is this human, this is this biochemistry, this is his neuron, this is everything you need to know about this human, create the perfect song. Right. That, I mean, I suppose that would be based on faith that artificial intelligence is going to produce perfection, which is very much like what religions um, sell us. You know, religions tell us, oh, you're not, there's no perfection in your life now, but if you just believe us, if you just trust us and follow, you know, our pathway, then we'll lead you to perfection. And so, I mean, that requires faith. It's not the type of faith that nihilists have. So perfection is unattainable according to nihilism. That's one of the 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 sort of um, basic assumptions. Okay. Of course, it's an assumption. You know, as with any philosophy, it's um, falsifiable. You know, show me perfection, and I suppose you know, then nihilism would crumble. So, so it's a philosophy. You you said it's a way of living. Uh, like, what does that mean? Like, is, is something to live by? Is something to have like a religion? Is something to have this in your life? Yeah. No, that's, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. Um, I've had students who tell me that philosophy sounds like a religion to me. Um, lacking religion, what do I have to make sense of the world? I have philosophy. Without philosophy, I can honestly say that I wouldn't have a life. I mean, without uh, philosophy has been what's offered me some sort of way of orienting myself towards the world ever since I was a, a, a teenager. It's why I've devoted my, you know, my entire life to studying and teaching and writing about um, philosophy. So, you know, what is it? Um, well, I it, it is, it, it's a framework. It's a way of thought. And um, Spengler says that philosophy is a way for us to, um, uh, to make sense of the incomprehensible. Okay? It's a way for us to face a world that doesn't make any sense and try to make um, sense out of it. Um, the way that I think about philosophy, I use the, the phrase wondrous distress. I think philosophy is a form of thinking which human beings can utilize in order to encounter a world that ultimately doesn't make sense, and we can try to work towards making sense out of it. It's a never-ending um, sort of process. So with philosophy, I see it as, um, you know, it's, a, it's this, um, this form of thought in which we're trying to engage with a world that is beyond comprehension ultimately, And so we're constantly asking questions about the world, trying to offer speculations about the world, but always recognizing that those questions lead to more questions and those speculations are always open to questioning themselves. So philosophy is very, very friendly to ongoing questioning, to deferring final answers 
um, to reality, but it gives us a sort of a path, okay, a path to tread. Okay, uh, okay to rephrase what you said to see if I understand. So you said that this philosophy is not a religion, but it's a way to help uh, us, uh, not generally philosophies and stuff, it's a way to help us reason and like have some basic uh, assumptions to our thinking so we can so we can think uh, uh, and put so for example if you are thinking about the, the word okay let's go okay we think there is no meaning to it so uh, this is an assumption that we put based and we build upon so this is what you, so is not, is, but the differentiation with religion is that is, is just helping you think, but the religion wants you to feel stuff, wants you to do stuff, wants you to, uh, to do more stuff. Yeah. I, I think the, the way that I distinguish between philosophy and religion, um, I, you know, religion does, have a, a basis in philosophy, but religion tends to offer final answers to questions. So, you know, the, the, the world's religions tend to give followers some sort of, you know, some sort of final answer about the truth. They tell them, you know, their followers, this is, this is what the truth ultimately is. And that truth is something that goes beyond logic and reason. It's rooted in faith. So like earlier, you were talking about the possibility that AI will solve, you know, all of our riddles in the future. Um, you can't prove that through reason right now. You have to have faith that AI is going to do that in the future. And so I think that's a characteristic of religious thought is faith that the system or the philosophy will lead to some ultimate truth. Philosophy as philosophy, I think, is open. It doesn't, it, it attempts to be presuppositionalist. It attempts to be open to more and more questions rather than offering final answers. Do, do you think being an nihilist makes people happier? <laughs> makes me happy. Um, I think um, some people, no. Some people find nihilism the most depressing thing, um, you know, in the world. The idea that you can never have your, you know, your highest hopes realized, um, that everything in the world is substandard. Um, but for me, and for actually an increasing number of philosophers, there's been sort of a, a recent turn seeing nihilism as something that can make you very, very happy. I think you, you know, I, I wrote a book about um, how humor and nihilism go together, you know, um, and if you think of the world as a big joke, as absurd, now things that are jokes and that are absurd, they can be funny. And so life could be seen as one big, absurd, funny joke rather than as some depressing, you know, failure. Okay, so I want to admit something to you. So I probably one of the happiest people you ever met. 
And uh, I don't think, uh, when when I think about where I'm happy and trying to explain and like maybe give advice to other people, uh, try to, I try to not give advice, but let's say when I try to give advice to other people how to be happy, I um, say, okay, there is, have no expectation, nothing is important, you are going to die, it's like uh, uh, everything sucks. But in all this, uh, when you put zero expectation, there is no meaning to anything, everything is upside after. It's like, (laughs) it it frees you from expectations from uh, anything. So when you are, uh, when you think that everything sucks, like people are selfish or all these things and it's like, and then you just, oh, but still I can go and have sex with uh, people and I can go and do this. I can have friends. I can make videos. I can play games and all this stuff and have these emotions, eat ice cream and then feel bad about it. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. No, I agree with you. I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, that's, there's something, it's a sense of liberation that potentially can come from feeling as though nothing is perfect in the world, that, um, uh, you know, that, uh, that nothing is as it should be. You know, if the nihilist is saying nothing matters, in, in a sense, well, if nothing matters, then you can do whatever you want. And so you can be liberated to, you know, to do all of the things that, uh, that give you joy, like you were talking about. Um, I, I find that one of the implications of, you know, a nihilistic philosophy. Again, not everyone does, you know, uh, Fedor Dostoevsky, uh, has a character in, what is it? I think the brothers Karamazov, you know, who claims that if anything is permitted, this is a terrible, sort of, um, you know, uh, situation. If anyone can do anything and there's no, you know, there's no moral punishment, if there's no, you know, moral rule against it, then the world would descend into immoral chaos, right? That's kind of a dim view of human beings. I mean, there's a lot of great things that human beings do, uh, you know, as well out of the sheer joy of, uh, you know, of wanting to do something in the world. Like you're saying, you know, you can make videos, you can make music, you can write books, you know, you can love people. I mean, all of those are, you know, are terrific things. There's nothing wrong with those things. And so choosing that, you know, if nothing matters, why not choose those things? If those things make you happy. So I agree with you that I think that, um, you know, that nihilism has a liberating um, aspect to it. I think the reason why a lot of people condemn it and are afraid of it um, is honestly, a lot of people, they're not, they're afraid of their own freedom. They're afraid to be let loose in the world. They want guides. They want authority figures. They want people to tell them what to do. I mean, just look at, you know, the various, you know, political um, figures that we have in the world. People worship them like they're some sort of, you know, religious god because they want someone to tell them what's right. They want someone to tell them what to do. They want to, they want a pat on the back from, you know, from a daddy figure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm being 
you know, sort of sarcastic there. But I think that's what scares a lot of people. Whereas for others like yourself, um, you know, there's something liberating about taking authority, taking, you know, absolute values out of the picture. So we're touching into some interesting territories now. So if nothing matters, now I understood what you are saying, that it's liberating. And after these people get this feeling, if nothing matters, then then what's the right way to live life? Is going if you like killing people, let's go and kill people. I'm not saying is I'm not saying it's not it's not the right way to live, but it's like where how we should live life if we are if we if we are both agree, let's say that nothing matters and nothing will get better or but let's let's have fun with what we have let's mm-hmm. say. right yeah for you know for me my you know my answer to this is the best way to live life is to recognize your goals and your aspirations the things that you want to do as yours that that um, they aren't i want to study philosophy okay? that's my goal It's not a goal that I think is objectively out there in the world. It's not something that, you know, exists independent of my thinking about it. And so I can't expect other people to want to do the same things as me. And so for me, um, one of the, you know, one of the uh, implications of nihilism for how you should live um, is to recognize that different Goals are abstractions. They're, they're fantasies of the individual, right? I have mine, you have yours. And so, um, I see nihilism as leading to a non-oppressive way of living life. I can't enforce my goals upon yours because your goals are just as good as my goals. Now, of course, you know, that, you know, you raise, raise that issue. Doesn't that liberate people to go? do awful things like, you know, killing people and such. Yeah, I don't think there's anything in nihilism that prohibits um, atrocity okay, or cruelty. Um, there's nothing prohibiting it. I mean, all I can say is that I don't want to be cruel and I don't want to see, you know, people harmed or hurt. Um, you know, and this is, I mean, there's a fundamental problem with nihilism. Over the course of, you know, Western history, um, nihilism has been invoked for awful things, okay? but it can also be invoked for, you know, for, um, for positive things in Russia, you know, the, um, the Russian nihilists were terrorists, you know, they, they thought that, uh, that nihilism, um, justified, you know, the destruction of the current political systems in order to try to clear the ground for something new. So nihilism, yeah, it, it can be destructive and it can be cruel, but it doesn't have to be. That's my point about it. And so, you know, there's no, there's no necessity for the nihilist to be uh, a violent, awful person, although there may be violent, awful nihilists. From my perspective, one of the things that nihilism um, teaches me is not to impose my values upon other people. So that's one of the ways that I see as, as important for living as a nihilist.
Well, I'm not saying that uh, it maybe putting people in prison and doing. I'm not. Or I'm not saying that nihilist doesn't want people to be in prison, but maybe having all these uh, uh, laws and all these so many oppressing things about the people. That what makes them want to go and kill more than they would do if they were let free. To do it could be. I mean, it could be. I mean, I know that um, for some of us, when we're faced with um, unreasonable oppressive authority, the first reaction is to rebel. I mean, I've done that, you know, since I was a teenager. Um, you know, I I push back, and so you may be absolutely right. Um, you know, I guess that would be a scientific sort of sociological question. Uh, you could do studies in order to see if that if that was correct or not. How how does a nihilistic uh, society looks like full of people. Yeah, this is something that I've been sort of struggling with because I, yeah, a lot of people that criticize me, criticize me right on that point. You know, how would the world look if everyone followed this? My tendency is towards individualistic anarchism as a political philosophy. Um, you know, the philosophy of uh, someone like, uh, like Stirner, wherein you, you may have a nihilistic sort of society insofar as you've got individuals who have all sorts of differing goals that perhaps come together when they agree that they have common goals. So you may have, you know, a whole set of goals. I may have a whole set of goals. And maybe there's some of our goals that overlap. Perhaps that's when society occurs, is when you and I come together and we say, okay, we've got a joint project that we want to work to work on, like doing a podcast. Okay? This is how society emerges, is by individuals agreeing that, yeah, this is a, something that, that I, I want to do. Okay? And we're not going to do it perfectly. It's not going to be you know, the perfect um, thing, but we're going to sit together here and we're going to do this thing. And that's how you know, a society emerges. Um, I would say, you know, from an anarchistic perspective, that when those joint goals start to start to dissolve, when people don't share goals anymore, then that's when, you know, the union of those two people dissolves as well. That's when we no longer agree to exist in the same society. So, um, so my, you know, my thought on that is how nihilism um, kind of articulates with politics, I guess it leads to a kind of individualistic anarchism for me. Uh, what does individual anarchist uh, mean uh, really? So an anarchist would be someone who does not um, want authority dictating to us what we should be doing. The individualistic anarchist, um, you know, would be the, the one who says that each individual is their own authority. So they don't have any higher authority above them. You know, there are socialists. Um, what is, what, what is the difference between anar uh, anarchy society and individual anarchy society? Well, some anarchists are, um, you know, are communal and socialist. Um, so they advocate the, um, you know, the construction of various social systems in order to regulate um, individual behavior. Um, individual anarchists, you know, I suppose you could say they have faith in the individual 
to be self-regulating. Um, you know, whether, whether our society is, is ready for individualistic anarchism now, I don't, you know, that's a, that's a big debate. Um, but the individualistic anarchist would, you know, see that as kind of like the ideal. The ideal is that everyone is educated, um, self-governing. Um, they don't need anyone to tell them what to do. Kind of like in Plato's Perfect Republic. I don't know if you've read, um, Plato's book, Republic. But um, he um, he proposes a cadre that he calls the philosopher kings and the philosopher kings are individuals who are aspiring towards an understanding of reality and truth. And because um, uh, because of that, they they don't need any sort of structure to tell them how to live life. Right. They're self-governing. They they discuss things with one another. You know, they're in, involved in debate together. Their community is one of, um, of uh, uh, kind of mutual understanding in that regard. So they don't have anyone above them. And I think in, you know, in my perfect individualistic anarchistic society, everyone would have an education. Everyone would um, be open to discussion and questioning with one another. No one would claim to have the ultimate truth. And, um, you know, we would uh, we would be able to, I don't know, get along with one another in that regard. Yes. If we are all nihilist in a society and someone tells us, oh, oh, guys, I found the truth. Come, God is here. We are going to make fun of them and they're going to be the, <laughs> the homeless people of the whole society. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, I, that would, you know, if you if you had a, a society of uh, of nihilists who claimed that, you know, absolutes were illusions, that would that would certainly be the case. If someone came around and said, hey, I've got the truth, there'd be a great deal of suspicion on the part of nihilists. Yeah. It's it's. <laughs> It's very interesting because you mentioned so many times the word anarchy through our, and I want to ask the connection if you if it's the same thing, anarchy and nihilism. <laughs> well, I think you know, anarchy is a more political philosophy. Um, I, I, you know, I've been thinking about how the you know, anarchy seems to me to be the you know the political manifestation of nihilism. They are connected historically. Um, the Russian anarchists were, you know, very closely connected to the Russian nihilists. Um, the distinction historically and, you know, in uh, pre-revolution uh, Russia had to do with the nihilists not having any sort of positive program for society. Um, they saw themselves as sort of like a, um, a ground clearing force to get rid of all of the rotten decay in society. And the anarchists tended to have a more positive view of what would be built after the destruction of the present order, right? So anarchy has, um, has for me anyway, more of a, um, you know, a positive, uh, uh, a positive sort of um, procedure or a positive um, um, program for, the building up of society. I don't think nihilism, nihilism doesn't in itself say anything about how to order society because nihilism doesn't claim that there's any perfect truth. 
So I would see, you know, in my mind, anarchy is one of the one of the consistent outgrowths politically of a nihilistic of an overall nihilistic philosophy. So uh, I want to uh, I want to take twenty seconds, maybe fifteen seconds, to explain you one theory that I have uh, developed with my 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 teacher. And uh, so we basically say that anything we don't we are not sure about anything. Maybe nothing matters. Maybe we, the, we don't know anything about the truth and all this stuff. So the only right thing to do, because we are we have limited time here, is to have fun here. So is this a nihilistic perfect view? Not perfect because nihilistic is, is has nothing to do with perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, well, I would. I mean, the first thought that comes to my mind with what you're what you're proposing there is: Are you saying that having fun is is truly is the true value? That that's that that is the only thing. That um, that really does matter. In other words, are you are are you are you positing fun as no no we're we're not doing that. But because you don't know anything about all the other stuff, you don't know if what your actions are are correct. If you when you do uh, let's say philanthropy is the right thing to do and all this stuff, you have no idea on all these things. So, uh, or what's the meaning of life or all this thing? What's the truth, God and all this stuff? The only logical thing to do is to choose the paths that are fun and have fun. Because when you have fun, you're going to enjoy more, learn more in the project. Because this podcast is very fun for me. So I'm having fun. So I'm learning faster. I'm enjoying it. and So kind of this is uh, so the, the theory. So I'm curious to see if this fits into nihilism a hundred percent well can i ask you another question about fun what is fun do you equate it with pure pleasure do you equate it with long-term goals how do you define fun in this case fun is the thing that that you do now and you are in a flow state you are uh, you are in enjoying this uh, thing now, the time flies. Let's say. Good, good. So, I mean, with with that type of experience, um, sometimes that's an experience that happens like that in the instant. But it's also the type of experience that sometimes you have to cultivate over the long run, like doing a podcast. Um, you have to learn how to use the equipment, which might not in itself be fun, but might promote later fun. So, yes. so, you know, having fun can be fun in, in the moment. That type of fun can oftentimes be very destructive to your life, right? There's plenty of people who think that they're having fun, but they're not really having fun because in the long run, their short term fun leads them to go to prison or to destroy their health okay, or to harm other people who, um, you know, then they're alienated from. 
long-term fun sometimes requires that you engage in short-term suffering in order to reap longer-term, you know, benefits. And so that's that's what comes to mind with um, with your theory here to me is that um, you know if life is meaningless and if the um, the only thing that you should be doing is having fun, it raises the question: so what kind of fun? It can't mean just living in the moment. It has to mean something more than that, and it has to involve suffering. So let's say combine. By the way, very interesting points. I love your points. Uh, uh, by uh, let's say a combination of this fun. Let's say of of the moment fun. That let's say okay, let's do mushrooms now to explore the universe. And like, I'm not sure if it will be a long term. Uh, the the best thing for me to do now with my time better than just me. I don't know learning how to use a camera so I can have long-term fun in a different way and a combination of these things. So, But in nihilism, can you say, but in nihilism, I understand you don't need, you don't have principles of uh, too much. You don't think too much about, oh, this is the main thing that we need to follow. I don't know. Like, uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, this is perfect. So, for instance, with, you know, learning how to use the camera, the microphones, Okay. You wouldn't claim that everyone should be learning to how to make podcasts, right? I mean, that's not what you're advocating. It's for you. Now, in order to learn to do those things, you need to suffer in the short term for some sort of long-term goal. That long-term goal is a projection of your desires. I want to create podcasts and I want them to be good. In my assessment, I want them to be as close to perfection as possible, but you never create the perfect podcast. So, you know, from the nihilistic perspective, what you're talking about with fun, I think it plays a role here. So, you know, for the nihilist, you're doing exactly what you should be doing, but you're never going to do it perfectly. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. You should do whatever it is that you've set your mind upon what it you take those goals as your own. You own those goals. There's something, you know, in existential philosophy, this view that you need to take responsibility for yourself, okay? that the goals you choose in life are your goals. And if they're important to you, then embrace them and do, do as much as you can with them. That doesn't mean that in the grand scheme of things, it means anything, you know, in, 10,000 years, these recordings might be burned up in, you know, some, you know, some big disaster, a conflagration, and no one will remember you or me. But in the time being, this is what gives us something to do. It doesn't mean it's the only thing to do. So, you know, that's my, my response to your point about having fun is that, Fun, real fun, in this sense, does require the um, the formulation of abstract goals that you're working towards. And that means that in the short run, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be, you know, struggle, which is not fun, in, you know, in the grand sense, but it contributes 
to a greater project. And that project, whether it's making a podcast, whether it's writing a book, whether it's, you know, drawing a picture, that's, uh, that's the point is to, you know, is to formulate your own goals and to um, engage in your own projects. That's, that's what I would see as the point of living human life. So, uh, so you, you said one point about the fun that it's, even when you have fun to not put fun on a pedestal that this is the sort of, to understand that you cannot have peak fun, perfect fun, right. you know, this, <laughs> and it <will> be, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, what would be, may- what would be perfect fun? Uh, you know, Fun doesn't exist. This, um, this podcast does life doesn't get any better. <laughs> Perfect fun is here. <laughs> well, I may agree with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned too many times the word suffering, and I'm curious to understand what's the role in this nihilistic view. Mm-hmm. Well, suffering in the sense that I'm talking about it is that experience of falling short, the experience of missing your mark. Um, you know, um, the term passion is associated with suffering, like the passion of the Christ, you know, is really the suffering of Christ as he's, you know, as he's going to the cross. Um, so passion and suffering are intimately connected with one another. So when you're, when you're suffering, you're, you're missing your goal. You're aspiring towards something that is eluding you. Um, and, uh, you know, you're not getting what it is that you, you really want in that moment. And that's, you know, that's part and parcel, I think, of all human life. That's, that's where I agree with Buddhism. I agree with Buddhism, um, in the first noble truth that life is suffering. It's not, you know, the Buddha had claimed that even love, when you're in love with someone, that's a form of suffering because you're trying to. But but not perfect suffering. Not perfect suffering? Yeah, well, there is no. Yeah, there is no perfect (laughs) suffering, but there's, yeah, the experience of suffering. So even, yeah, even in love, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not the person that you're in love with. You know, you're, you're trying to make a connection with that person. And so there's always that gap. There's always that separation or alienation between you and the object of your love. Um, that's where suffering lies is in that gap, the gap between what it is you want and what it is that you get. You know, so like, you know, like we were talking about with, you know, having to endure short term pains in order to reap long term fun. You always have that gap between you and what it is that you're trying to do so long as you're in this world. Who knows? Maybe in heaven that gap disappears and everything is exactly the way it should be. Uh, For some of us, that might seem more like hell than heaven. (laughs) Yes. So I, I, I want to admit that I romanticize suffering. Suffering is so, I don't know a lot of, people try to uh, eliminate human suffering but like human suffering is perfect is uh, not, not there is nothing is it's a, it's amazing experience like to because if you don't suffer like 
I, I, I will give you an example. Like, uh, I went to a Navy SEAL training for eight months. That was the ultimate suffering. Uh-huh. But it was so beautiful. So I was, I have so many good memories. I have so, I understand myself a lot better. I was it, suffering. It's uh, a lot of times growth, a lot of times le- teaching, a lot of, the, there is so many stuff. And it's like, sometimes it, it's, it, it's more fun than the outcome itself that you're trying to, uh, to do. Like, uh, who cares about finishing Navy SEALs the, the, the day that you finish the ceremony? Mm-hmm. The, the, the whole thing is, is that, is that it works. So, yes. Yeah, so, uh, but this Nihil, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. So this, this nihilistic view, it allows you to see things. I think in this way. Absolutely. I agree with you. I mean, nature, um, he wrote in Beyond Good and Evil that the, you know, the English psychologists, he's talking about utilitarian philosophers, they want to eliminate human suffering. And Nietzsche, you know, he boldly states, we want to make human suffering even more than it ever was, which sounds outrageous. It's like, why would someone want to make human suffering, you know, expand human suffering? Well, his point is that, is your point, is that there's something vital and important about suffering. Suffering is what, you know, what do they say? Suffering builds character. You know, suffering is what, um, what pushes you towards a goal. Suffering is what, um, you know, what uh, uh, allows you to learn things about the world. It's a passion. Suffering is a passion. Um, now, yeah, there's physical suffering, certainly. You know, I, I was in the army. And so, you know, I sympathize with your you know, your experience with, um, you know, the Navy SEAL training, the training I went through was, you know, was army boot camp, which was nothing like SEAL training, but still it was, you know, it was a type of physical suffering that, you know, like you, I look back on and I sort of cherish it. I'm glad I did that. You know, it sucked in a way, but it was also the most wonderful thing, you know, imaginable in another way. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, even when their loved ones die, my mother died, my uh, not like their wife died, or all their sister died, they recall this stuff. This is what you've said, and it builds so much character. Like they think, if this didn't happen, or if the loved one didn't break up with me, like even the worst case scenario, like stuff. Even if if. I was not getting, if I didn't get kidnapped, I'm, I'm saying about crazy stuff. Those are the things. A lot of times when I meet people and they are cool, they always have like a background story like that, that they are cool. So, uh, so yes. So let's increase human suffering. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, may, it makes people more interesting, certainly. Um, you know, physical suffering is one thing, as you're, you know, pointing out, there's also, um, non-physical or, you know, mental suffering, um, that we go through. And the interesting thing to me about those two types of suffering is that, you know, physical suffering is the lesser of the two types. You can suffer through a lot of physical torment if it's for a goal. You know, Nietzsche says, if you have a why, you can endure any how. If you have something that you are focused on mentally, then 
your physical suffering can be experienced not so much as suffering, but as something that is propelling you towards this non-physical goal. Um, you know, so mental suffering, mental suffering is, is the hard one. That's, that's the real, real hard one. You are touching on a very interesting topic because uh, me, I want to suffer. But a lot of times when I'm discussing this with my teacher, uh, he's saying that a lot of people don't have the same mindset like you and they, therefore their suffering sucks 1,000 times more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you put two people in the same situation and depending upon the state of their mind, yeah. One person might not suffer as much as another person, even though objectively they're going through the same sort of circumstance. You know, in the army, that's what they used to tell us. Everything is mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter. Right. So, yeah, the, um, you know, the, the mental state that you're in is, um, you know, is what I think is key in determining the degree of suffering um, that you're going through. So that's, you know, that's, that's the crux of it in terms of suffering. Yes. So a lot of times, let's say I, I go, to, uh, I go to, a st uh, I have an argument with a person or like uh, I go to a street and some, uh, I said something bad to someone and uh, that's a lot of times I don't bother to to feel too bad about the situation because maybe they learned something about that. Maybe that was the they went home and the, that was literally changed their lives for for a better direction or something. You don't never know. But if they if they <laughs> so that's why I'm 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 very happy because a lot of times I feel like a weirdo alone thinking about this stuff. Oh, it's good to insult people. I'm not saying that you agree with me that we need to insult people, but even being able to discuss this stuff with someone, it feels like. <laughs> well, I, I mean, don't you think that some people are more ready um, to take criticism or to be insulted than other people, you know? So like a child, you don't, you know, you don't criticize a child about, you know, their goals in life and all of that the way you would criticize an adult. As a Houston Smith said, you know, there's nothing wrong with children playing with toys, but it's a real tragedy when a middle-aged man is still playing with toys, right? That, that different people are at different stages of, I mean, you know, I, I'll call it spiritual development, um, you know, um, certain people are more ready to hear things than other people. So it doesn't make sense to talk, you know, nihilistic philosophy with, um, you know, with uh, uh, someone who, you know, simply wants to make a lot of money. Okay, um, It doesn't make sense to talk about nihilistic philosophy with a five-year-old. Uh, you know, it takes a certain level of spiritual elevation in order to engage with those types of talk topics and that takes preparation you know and there's nothing it's not that there's anything wrong with being a child or wanting to make money it's just that it's a you know there's a there's a certain mindset that goes along with different states of being um so you know everyone's different in that regard 
So, you know, when you're saying that, you know, you feel bad about insulting um, people, uh, you know, sometimes, but then think that maybe it, it's helping them. Well, if, um, you know, if they're prepared to be helped, then, you know, maybe the insult will re- be something they reflect upon and that will, you know, fortify them later on in life. And maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. But it has to be the appropriate type of, um, you know, uh, comment to the appropriate type of person. Yes, but... In a nihilistic view, I'm taking things to a stream. Then it doesn't matter if you insult someone, right? Because a- anything doesn't matter, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's there's different levels of significance, I would say, as well. So, you know, oftentimes when we're talking about things not mattering, we're talking in the cosmic sense. So, I mean, it, for me, it's oftentimes helpful to think. In, uh, in terms of cosmic meaninglessness, I had a, a professor once who, you know, told those of us in the seminar that we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't um, hesitate to speak up and to say stupid things in the seminar because, in the grand scheme of things, no one's going to remember what you said anyway. Which, in one sense, could be kind of depressing, but in another sense, it's kind of liberating. It opens you up to talk and to, you know, to be free with your thoughts. So cause, you know, the cosmic meaninglessness, or you you might call it cosmic nihilism is that viewpoint that, yeah, when I abstract away from my own individual perspective to the cosmic perspective, everything is insignificant. Okay. Nothing lasts, nothing matters. There's also, however, you know, a type of significance that attaches to your perspective, your individual lived existential situation. The fact that to you making the podcast, that goal is important. Or to me, you know, um, uh, you know, watching a certain horror movie, you know, or listening to a certain, a certain band is significant and important to me. I can recognize that it's important to me, but in the cosmic sense is meaningless, right? So cosmic significance is, operates at a different level, I would say, than you know, than individual significance and meaning. So I'm comfortable talking so, about my own individual meaning and recognizing that to the universe it's meaningless. So you are saying we shouldn't insult others. I don't think we should. Everyone has their you know their own sorts of goals, their own projects, things that are important to them. And just because they're not important to me, that doesn't mean anything because in the grand scheme of things, my goals don't mean anything to the universe. <laughs> and that's that, you know, that what, sense of liberation. What what if I in, insult people because of authenticity and just speaking my mind, if he's um, saying my truth? that uh, still I should be mindful about that. So, so if you're, if you're authentically upset with someone and you're, you're authentically expressing um, something, I mean, personally, I don't see anything wrong with authentically expressing, you know, what you're truly feeling. Um, I suppose it's incumbent upon the other person in that case, if they're going to be authentic, to recognize that you're expressing something true about yourself, that, um, you know, either they, if they're going to be an authentic person, that they should recognize that as well. Um, cosmically, does it matter if you, you know, blow up at someone or 
become frustrated with someone and yell at them. Cosmically, it doesn't matter, I suppose. Um, but I mean, entering into, you know, that partnership that we were talking about earlier, you know, if we're going to find, you know, points of contact between us, I think it's facilitated by trying to understand the other person and not alienating other people. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, it makes perfect sense. And thank you for answering these weird questions that, <laughs> that, that I have because they are not normal. As I, <laughs> I never see people expressing them in my life before. <laughs> well, I think so, they're perfectly uh, good philosophical questions. <laughs> so I have a question about death with all this uh, stuff that we are discussing. So death is something that doesn't matter uh, we're all gonna die and our life like you said in the grand scheme of theme like how, how, what role death plays in this nihilistic view yeah. well one of one of the themes amongst philosophers that deal with nihilism um, is death um, so there's a sense in which death you know, human death specifically, um, is a, it's evidence of our finitude. The fact that we're not eternal, that we're not gods, that uh, we're not going to be here, you know, forever. Um, so philosophers like, you know, like Martin Heidegger claim that the awareness of our death, of our finitude is part of what makes us the type of creatures that we are. So, you know, in your very being, that you are not a god, that you're not going to exist eternally, that there's a there's an expiration date on your existence. And that fact about you is what can, one, lead to despair. Okay? It can lead to the feeling that, well, I don't, nothing really matters at all. So it can lead to that type of you know, that type of nihilism, the nihilism of passivity and the nihilism of, um, of meaninglessness. Um, it can also be the sort of motivation that pushes you to do things. Recognizing that you won't be here forever might be the very thing which motivates you to do something with the time that you have while you are here to engage in projects. Um, you know, to, um, um, to, to do things that you do value. They may not value in the grand scheme, in the cosmic sense, but they value to you here and now. Um, that's uh, Heidegger. He talks about human existence as the term he uses in German is das Sein, which means being here now. Who are you? You are the type of being that is here now. You have an expiration date. You're going to die. You're not going to be here forever. What you do in that span from your now to your expiration date, that's your project. That's your human project. You can, you know, even if you say, I'm not going to do anything, that's still a choice. <laughs> you're still, when you say you're not going to do, do anything, you're still doing something, right? You have to decide what doing nothing means. If does it mean lying in my bed all day? You know, does it mean drinking all day, or does it mean so? Mm -hmm. So is death is the best thing ever, like you're describing it? 
when when put in this light, it certainly does have positive characteristics. You know, we tend to think, like many philosophers think of nihilism as completely negative. Death itself seems to have certain positive characteristics that are beneficial for human beings. It gets us to do, it can potentially get us to do interesting things. Yeah. Um, you know, what would, what would it be like to watch a movie that never ended? It would be boring, right? Yes. Think of death as like the concluding scene in a film, the last page on a novel. You know, if your life is the story, if it has this narrative arc, it has to have a conclusion. And death is what offers that conclusion. Yes, and it would be boring if something didn't have a conclusion or an end. Right. If it just went on and on and on. You know, and interestingly enough, that's one of the paradoxes in nihilism, is that there are people who come to nihilistic conclusions from the fact that of human death and finitude. Well, if we don't live forever, then what's the point? But you can also come to a nihilistic conclusion from the thought of, you know, existing forever. If you existed forever, what would be the point? <laughs> there would be no point. So the, that, that's kind of paradoxical. You, you can arrive at a nihilistic conclusion either from immortality or from mortality. Now, Nietzsche writes about this in uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra. Um, he makes that point. I give you one trillion dollars. How do you spend it? That's an that's way more money than any one human being could ever spend. So, um, my first thought would be that a lot of it would be given away. I'd give it to yes. This is this is like where the, I always ask the guests on this podcast, like, how do you have the right impact that you want to have with those one trillion dollars mm -hmm. so family friends who are in need um would probably take priority probably give a lot of it to charities um i think i'd buy a new motorcycle <laughs> um and uh maybe start a publishing company <laughs> to me to me money's money's important insofar as it, I don't know, clears a space where you're not beholden to other people. I think that's the importance of money to me. And so I would utilize enough of that $1 trillion to keep myself insulated from, you know, the, uh, the needs to work, uh, the needs to do what other people want me to do in order to pursue what it is that I wanted to do yeah i don't know if that's a good answer or not so basically free yourself yeah given the type of you know capitalist economy that um that we live in i think that's that's what i would use it for to free myself and that's a good way of putting it How did you learn all this stuff uh, that we discussed today and generally all the stuff that you know is mostly books, is mostly uh, conversations with other people, is it meditation? How do you learn faster generally? I'm, I'm someone who always loved reading. Um, so I was kind of a, when I was young, kind of a loner. 
Um, so I spent a lot of time alone, reading, watching movies and such. So yeah, a lot of reading. Um, but being with other people is, um, you know, very, very important as well. Having, um, you know, having mentors who have had educational experiences or, you know, other types of experiences that I haven't had. Um, and being in their presence and uh, talking with them, making mistakes in front of them and having them correct me. Um, that's been very, very important. So I've had a handful of mentors who, you know, I'll remember throughout, you know, my entire life who have helped sort of kind of give me a path, give me a, you know, a, a guidance. Um, and those aren't just philosophers, you know, sociologists, uh, writers who, you know, who I've met, who have been very, very helpful in teaching me. So reading, having conversations and being under the tutelage of someone who is superior um, to me in knowledge and living life is, you know, the third thing that uh, has been important to me to learn the things that I've learned. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, military training. One of the, you know, big experiences in my life was, you know, um, going through boot camp and, you know, being a member of the U.S. Army. There was, I mean, there was something very, I don't know, down to earth about it that was an important uh, learning experience to me. So, um, you know, those are the sorts of um, things, experiencing the world, failing in the world, going down the wrong paths. So the military was one of the wrong paths for me. It didn't suit me ultimately, but I wouldn't give it back, right? Um, you know, working in certain jobs and realizing that um, that wasn't my way, studying certain subjects. Um, I guess that's that's another fourth thing that I would say was has been really, really important to me is failure. Fail, 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 fail. And it's only through failing that you realize that that path is not your path, right? Um, I'll invoke Heidegger again. He wrote an essay in which he um, he likened the um, doing philosophy to wandering through the woods. When you wander through the woods and you go down a you know a path and you come to a dead end, you don't say, "Ah, you know, I came to the dead end. That was a waste of time." No, you say, "Oh, that's where that path led." It's, it wasn't a waste of time. It, I've discovered something. I've discovered something. Now I turn around and I go a different way. And that's how I found, you know, life to be. There are a lot of, you know, quote unquote failures. They're ultimately not failures in the big picture because they taught me something. They taught me something about who I am and how I exist in the world. So yeah, all of those things have been really, really important to me. Being a loner, reading books and like, uh, uh, learning by yourself with the internet and all these stuff. Second is having mentors and other people that uh, have superior knowledge to guide you. And third is just by experiencing life, going through all these wrong paths and understanding yourself through failure. Yeah, perfect. I would add one more thing. You've made me think of one more thing. Heroes. <laughs> Um, I used to debate this with my friends when I was a teenager. I had friends who said, ah, there's no heroes. Heroes, you don't, heroes don't exist in the world. And I was always of the view that I needed, I needed heroes. 
Um, my heroes were, you know, weird heroes, I suppose. There were people like Yukio Mishima, the author, okay, or uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, the philosopher. Those were the types of heroes um, that were important to me. And they were important to me not because I thought that they knew the truth. I didn't think that they were perfect, but they showed me that certain things were possible, that there were certain paths in life that were possible. Um, so I would say for me, you know, having, having these hero figures and honestly, um, some of the hero figures that I've had over the course of my life that I've met, they fell. <laughs> meeting my heroes was like the worst thing in the world. So having, having heroes that you don't meet <laughs> so you can still have this kind of ideal image of them, that's important to me. <laughs> it's very interesting what you said. So uh, having heroes that you don't meet. So if you <laughs> have the choice, it can be you, you choose to meet them or not meet them. Now, from my perspective now, I, if, I, if I have a hero that I want to keep as a guiding sort of guidepost, it's best for me not to meet them. The ones that I've met, always disappoint. Why? Because there, there, you know, really there are no heroes except in your mind. It's, it, it's very interesting what you're saying because I had exactly the same experience. Uh, so I had, uh, so I'm, I'm like, I had, uh, I don't know if you know, Mr. Beast is the biggest YouTuber in the world. Mm -hmm. And he was, uh, he has 180 million subscribers. And he was, when I was younger, my hero. But after I met him and I hung out with him and I became friends with him, uh, um, I'm, uh, he's stupid like me. <laughs> 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 and another one that I had recently, I, I did, uh, I, I met Elon Musk and he was another hero, hero of mine. And, I was, it was like, he's still a hero of mine because he's amazing and stuff. But from a hundred at 10 out of a hundred that I loved him now is like maybe 90. <laughs> it's like the love, because you see the flaws, you see that mm -hmm. it's real. It's like, and that's, that's similar to what they say. Sometimes the most uh, romantic, uh, vivid, strong love is the love that you have and the other person don't know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. That, I mean, that reflects what we've been talking about all along here. And there is maybe something useful in dethroning your heroes because you realize that, oh, I could do that, right? So there may be something useful in meeting heroes and realizing that they don't live up to your, you know, your expectations because then, it's kind of like lowering expert expectation. It's like now it, it opens it up for me to do that as well. But yeah, the downside of that, again, is that it lowers the expectation. Maybe you don't aspire as high as you otherwise um, would have. No, I agree with you. Yes. Yeah, so, so if I choose to meet them or not meet them, I choose to meet them because that gives me so much confidence in my ability to do stuff. Well, that's and, and it, instrumentally, if that works for you, then that may be the right thing to do. I, you know, I found that 
that I tend to aspire more like to a higher degree if I'm trying to reach higher. And so if I don't meet my heroes and I'm still putting them up on a pedestal, I feel like I'm, I'm making myself oh, bigger. That's, that's, wow. You are a philosopher, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking, uh, something we didn't talk and I, I left the, the best thing for now, humor. <laughs> What did you learn about this interesting word? So what is humor? How does it um, relate to what we're talking about? Um, anything, anything about it. If you want to tell me jokes, feel free. I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, well, humor, I mean, humor, I see as an attitude. It's, it's, a, it's a power that a person has. I, I make a distinction between humor um, and jokes okay? um, and comedy. Okay? So, you know, a comedy is kind of like an art form. It's, you know, it's a, it's a form uh, that you find in drama, that you find in literature. So there's a kind of, you know, a narrative structure to comedy. Jokes are kind of like, um, you know, little engineered, uh, you know, stories that evoke laughter. But humor is the attitude that can create things like comedy and that can create things like jokes. So that's the way I think of humor as it's a it's a, a human capacity. Not everyone has a sense of humor. Not everyone has the capacity to look at the world and to you know organize a story in a funny way or to create you know a joke in a funny way. And so, you know, so it's a it's a capacity that not everyone has, but I think it's a really, really important and powerful um, capacity, in particular when looking at the world. Because for many people like nihilists, um, there are nihilists who look at the world and find it to be a tragedy, an awful place. But with a sense of humor, I think you can look at a world that's filled with suffering failure, um, you know, struggle. And you can think of it from a humorous perspective and see the world as something that evokes laughter, something that is, you know, a big cosmic joke. So, you know, for me, humor is, um, it's, it's a way of thinking and it's a precious way of thinking. It's a powerful way of thinking that not everyone is capable of um, utilizing. What it does, I think, is it um, it elevates the person above the phenomenon that they're looking at. So when you take a humorous perspective on, say, like death, what you're doing is you're elevating yourself above it and you're demanding a certain type of, I guess you could say, pleasure from something that might otherwise cause pain. And um, I think the root of that ability, of that humorous ability, rests in a capacity to take incongruous phenomena and to linger with them. I've, this is part of um, a whole philosophical theory of humor called the incongruity theory of humor. According to that theory, what we find humorous is something are things that are incongruous that shouldn't fit together with one another. Okay. And so the humorous 
the person with a humorous attitude is the person who's able to look at things that shouldn't go together and find them funny, to find pleasure in them, you know. So I'm trying to think of a good joke. <laughs> it's, a, it's a skill, you think? It's a, something that you've been born with mostly? I don't know. I, there, may, I, there may be people who, who are naturally capable of humor, who, you know, who are born with that skill. I don't, I, I don't necessarily think that it's, that's the only root of it. I think that you can probably learn to view the world humorously. Um, and I think that the ability to learn to view the world humorously um, requires that you, you cease to see the world as a threat because in a humorous state of mind, you're setting yourself apart from, you know, suffering, the dangers of the world. You're looking at the world as though it's not threatening to you, that you're above it all. And so, you know, I suspect that you can learn how to adopt that attitude. I, you know, I don't know specifically how you go about learning it, but maybe you're born with it. Maybe you can also learn it as well. But yeah, it's a skill, as you said. It's a skill that I, I believe can be developed. Uh, so how, how did you study humor? Like, how do you go and study humor? When I first started, um, you know, uh, studying humor philosophically, I was in contact with um, this uh, guy who's at the time the preeminent, you know, humorous, uh, philosopher, humorous philosopher in the United States, John Morrell. And he, but he said to me that it was a very lonely area of study. The philosophers didn't really study humor at that time. And so, you know, when I first started, you know, philosophically studying uh, humor, it was it was a lonely field. And so the way to study it was, well, to look back at classic texts. Most of the major philosophers in the West have made scattered comments about humor and about jokes um, and to try to, you know, try to think through the implications of what people like Schopenhauer or Nietzsche um, wrote about humor or Plato, Aristotle. Um, but then to read, you know, people like John Morrell and contemporary humor theorists. And then I guess the biggest thing was just think, you know, try to take take that information that, you know, read about um, discussed with, you know, with mentors and then try to think through, you know, what the implications of those theories were. So that's, you know, that's how I did it. I did it in a formal setting. You know, I did that in graduate school. So when I was studying for my doctorate in philosophy, um, I focused on, uh, wrote a dissertation on nihilism and humor. So as I understand, you are describing this uh, humor uh, thing as a very, very, very extremely useful tool to live life. I think it is. Um, you know, it's the humorous attitude traditionally has been seen as kind of superficial. You know, it's just like comedy is seen as superficial, whereas tragedy is seen as deep. You know, to look at things in this deep sort of sad way is somehow more profound. Um, But I don't think that that's the case. I think that the humorous attitude is has its own sort of depth and profundity to it. Um, you know, I've heard again and again and again actors saying that it is far more difficult 
to do comedy than it is to do tragedy. Um, you know, that there's something very, very, that requires a great deal of skill in order to be a successful humorist. So I think that, you know, humor is, um, it is a skill. It's a rare skill. It's a difficult skill. And I think it's really, really profound and it's really, really useful. And it's useful, you know, in facing the dangers of the world. The world, as we've been talking about, you know, for all this time, is a place that is filled with pain. It's filled with danger. It's filled with suffering. It's filled with all sorts of you know, terrible things, you know, death and sadness and all of that. One way to look at the world then is it's a tragedy. It's an awful, tragic sort of place. A lot of people think the, the world is like that. But is there a way through, you know, the skill of humor that you can turn your perspective around and master the world and see that same world, the world that's filled with death and suffering and um, failure as a humorous place? And I think that, you know, there are there are people who are capable of doing that. And in so, you know, in doing that, they master the world. They, you know, they they elevate themselves above the world and they they take they embrace the world for what it is. You know, this is what Nietzsche calls joyful wisdom. I again, I'm sorry that I will uh, say a small experience that I had. I, I had 30 days with no food. It was just uh, I did it for for fun as a challenge and uh, it was very bad. Like I was so angry. All this I can't describe you how horrible the feeling was. Like suffering, a lot of suffering, basically. But beautiful, like I described. You, I enjoy suffering because there is a lot to it. But the only thing that I found hope at that time it was laughing and humor uh, to 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 help me do what you're saying like elevate life like see that i'm above this or like just the past time so i really 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 enjoyed jokes and all this uh, laughter and like humor in this situation right right and in you know and in a case like that you know what's interesting is that sure you're elevating yourself above you know, the objective situation of starving, but there's also an elevation of yourself over yourself. It's like you're looking at yourself going through the experience and there's a part of your mind which is separating from you in order to look back at yourself. You're reflecting upon yourself and that's where the, the humorous attitude resides, right? It's in that uh, immediately that. When, when you do that process that you see yourself, seeing yourself, uh, it's uh, it's there is kind of you understand that it's not too bad. <laughs> right, right. And this is a direct connection to what we were talking about before with cosmic nihilism or cosmic meaninglessness, that ability to separate from your ego from your egoistic connection to yourself and to see yourself in a grander perspective. It's like, I'm not that important. This is not that bad. And that's, that's both how to embrace nihilism, but it's also the root of humor. And that's, you know, to me, that's the connection there is that the humorous attitude 
is a state of mind where one separates and is able to see the world from a sort of meta perspective that is nihilistic, but also humorous. It's like laughing at your own starvation, you know, laughing at your own situation by separating yourself from yourself and reflecting back. Yeah. Do we have free will? I guess that depends on, that's a huge subject. Um, do we have free will? Are you wondering if, if I think that, if I have an, you know, an instinct on it or? I don't know. Maybe if you, <laughs> you personally, if the nihilist believes something or something like that, uh, what's your thoughts on the topic? I mean, personally, I do think that each of us has free will. Um, there's a kind of an existential aspect to my thought here. Um, I believe that we're constantly freely choosing things. There are th certain things that we don't choose, like the world that we're thrown into, um, you know, the body that we possess, the fact that if you don't feed your body, you will starve. You don't choose, you know, those facts about the world. But I do think that there is a type of free will that's involved in choosing the significance and the meaning of those facts. That uh, Jean-Paul Sartre says that, uh, you know, the world in itself, you know, doesn't have disasters. A disaster doesn't exist in nature. All that exists in nature is the reorganization of matter. Disasters are an evaluation of human beings. So we, I, I think that we have a lot more free control over how it is that we interpret reality than we sometimes think that we have. So in that regard, I guess I would say that, yeah, I believe we have free will. So I can, if I was born without a leg, I could choose freely to interpret that as a disability. I could also choose to interpret that as an opportunity to get an artificial limb and become a marathon runner. Um, you know, if, um, if I was, uh, you know, uh, uh, born into a poor, you know, a poor family, I could see that as something that's going to force me onto the path of criminality, or I could choose to see that as the motivation for me to do great art. Right. So that's where I think free will um, lies in the world. It lies for human beings in that that spot in which we are choosing the significance of the facts around us. And what does it mean? Interesting. To so so you're, it's not that we we 100 percent choose the actions. The, the, that's not the important thing in what you are describing. We are choosing how to we perceive the data that we have in front of us. Yeah, that I I think that's well put, right? So yeah, I don't choose the laws of physics, but I choose what I do with the laws of physics. I choose you know how I harness the laws of physics and uh, in you know in accordance to with uh, that which I value. So yeah. Um, the world, the world is a certain way and there are certain things that I can't control in the world, but I can control my thoughts and my goals and my values about the world.
Dear friend, why you accepted to come on this podcast? <laughs> why did I accept to come on the podcast? Well, after you sent me the invitation, I looked at um, some of your videos. Uh, in particular, uh, you going to the Shaolin Temple and training with those monks um, and the interview you had with another philosopher. And you seemed very sincere. You seemed very honest um, and very down to earth. And so I thought that you would be an interesting person to talk to. I'm sorry that I didn't live up to the... Nihilists uh, <laughs> 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 expect that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to say that uh, our conversation today it, it it was really 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 beautiful experience because I a lot of times like you believe something and it's like you don't know why you do believe it and you don't know it. nobody ever described it There's, i'm not saying that I, i'm now i'm fully a nihilist or something like that but uh, but it, it, it was very beautiful even just to understand because when i came here i was like nihilist is like feels not they, they feel nothing as uh, the thing so now uh, I, I I I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm living this conversation, and I I would love to talk to you again in the future. No, it's a pleasure. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you. It's um, yeah, it's um, it has been a lot of fun, and it's nice to have someone who's interested and who sort of provokes you to articulate your thoughts. And um, I feel like you did that really, really well. Thank you. Yes. In in a more simple way, because you have sometimes uh, very clever people have the curse of knowledge. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so uh, I I uh, when because I told you I like to uh, to be honest. When I watch a lot of your podcasts, I was like, oh my god, this guy is saying very cool things, but a lot of times in in a very in a very with the terms and stuff, the right terms and all this stuff. And that kind of gives away from the true understanding of what he's saying of sinking in a hundred percent your brain. So uh, I, I, I was coming in the podcast with only one hope. I just want to make him speak simple. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I think you did. You did as good a job as you could, and I did as good a job as I could. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, thank you for watching. We love you. Bye-bye.